So not too long ago, I held this workshop at WPPI where I gave my top 30 creative strategies to get photography clients as fast as possible without paid ads. And it killed it. It sold out. It was incredible. I've been sitting on it for a little while and I've decided to bring it back, to bring it back and to give it directly to you. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to pay anything either. I just want to help you grow your business each day for three days. I'm going to share with you 10 ultra unique creative ways to attract dream clients to your photography business without spending a bunch of money. I'm calling this thing the three day client blitz and it is pure gold for three days. I'm going to give you so many creative ideas to get clients in your business right now. Just go to sixfigurephotography.com forward slash blitz six S I X six figure your photography.com forward slash blitz b l i t z i can't wait to give you some incredible ideas you're listening to the six figure photography podcast with ben hartley where we help you grow your business by winning more bookings maximizing profits and breaking through limiting beliefs if you would like to get early access months in advance to future episodes of this show and to see any visual references mentioned on air today, head over to benhartley.com forward slash mastermind, benhartley.com forward slash mastermind. Join close to 20,000 other photographers in that community who are getting early access to the podcast today. Speaking of today, today we have with us Braden. Drake. Braden Drake, he reached out to me and he says, listen, Ben, I'm a licensed attorney. I got a master's in tax law, but all your listeners really want to know is that I am their gay best friend here to get their business taxes together. He's a licensed attorney and tax professional. Braden works with creatives on all legal and tax aspects of their business. Uh, he kind of makes all this legal stuff not suck so much, you guys. Um, he currently educates creative entrepreneurs through a number of stages in their business. If you're just starting off, if you're in the middle stage, if you're getting into advanced corporation shenanigans through his courses, podcasts. He recently just wrote a book, Unfuck Your Biz. I should probably, I'll bleep that. I, I was late on the beat. I'll have to have my wife fix that. <laughs> uh, he covers a, a variety of topics, contracts, business entities, cash flow systems, taxes, Braden Drake, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. You, have, you got a very sophisticated setup here. I'm like taking notes on the way you do your intro for my own <laughs> podcast. Listen, it's it's uh, it's sophisticated for the purpose, not of complexity, but solely for the purpose of um, so I can just make it all happen without editing. So before I used to have to like, I record a separate introduction, a separate outro, a separate yeah. music, and I'd have to have someone mix it all. And it was taking so long to get episodes out. And so now the purpose of this whole setup is really just to simplify it. I can get episodes out very quickly, essentially doing it all live. All the editing is like live minus, minus that the bleep. I was, I, I placed my bleep button there. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I'm going to have to get one. I'm going to have to get one of those bleep buttons right now. I have my VA edit my podcast, but yeah. I'm a very one take kind of person too. This, this looks awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. So today we're going to be talking, you know, there's so many directions we could go with legal and tax advice. We're going to be talking about essentials for first year business owners. And, and I want the listeners here, even as we say first year business owners, I would say this is going to be like legal and tax essentials for if you're in the early stages 
of your photography business. Um, because some, for some people it's year one, for some people they don't really start taking contracts uh, and, and kind of the tax planning seriously until maybe year two or three. And so I don't, I don't wanna miss those listeners. All right. I, I want to make sure that we're we're really dialing this into everyone who's engaged. I I think that tax. Um, how do I how do I put this? I think tax people, <laughs> you people, are a unique <laughs> type of people. And I'm always curious, like why, <laughs> why are you the way that you are, Braden? Uh, what got you so interested into the legal side of business operations? Yeah, how much how much time you got for that question? Um, well, super super short version. I actually went to college intending to major in marketing and minor in graphic design or fine arts. I okay, wanted to work awesome. in advertising. Yeah, um, didn't pan out for me. I got a C in calculus, which was a business prerequisite, and that um, made it so that I didn't get into business school. Weird, right? Yeah. So I became a political science major. I also majored in Russian. Um, my academic history is very bizarre, but I ended up getting really into policy, decided to go to law school and by um, uh, some various coursework that I did, I ended up finding out that I really liked tax. I actually don't like math that much. That surprises people. So I wish share that I got a C in calculus. Mm -hmm. So I tell people, mathematically speaking, tax comes down to addition, subtraction, and percentages. If you can calculate a profit margin, you can do the math that you need to do taxes. And if you can't calculate a profit margin, you need to learn how to do that. Um, so it's pretty basic from that perspective. To me, um, understanding how taxes work and operate, there's a little bit of a learning curve, but once you figure it out, it's kind of like a, you know, kind of like a fun puzzle yeah. to me. It, it does kind of feel like cheat codes sometimes too. Like it feels yeah. like I know something you don't know, not you, but just like if, if you can, well, you, listen, there's like major savings that you can, um, create for yourself with, uh, with the proper legal and tax, uh, advice, uh, really. And I don't, I don't know all that stuff. That's why I hire people, <laughs> uh, to yeah, try to help I, me out. I always feel like I have a Sony camera plugged into my computer right now. Um, and I watch several YouTube videos to get that thing set up. Yeah. So I always like to tell people, if you can figure out all the buttons and settings on that fancy camera, you can probably figure out your taxes. I think the camera is more complicated, but that's just me. I don't know. So you're kind of a double threat here and that you have like the, the legal side of things, but also, uh, like the tax, uh, side of the information also kind of understood. You, you have both of these areas uh, under your belt. Is that accurate? Yeah. So when most people, you know, most people say go deep in one area, yeah. don't go broad. I kind of took the opposite advice, uh, but this is why I tend to work largely with beginner business owners. My uh, ideal client base are people who don't have clients yet up until $200,000 in revenue, um, getting the very simple stuff set up. And then after that, you know, you go get an attorney on retainer, you hire an accountant, you have the money to go hire people and give you much more advanced advice from there. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so I want to start at a, a core level of protection. I get nervous, uh, when I talk to the photography industry sometimes <laughs> and, and the amount of creatives who, and it's not their fault. Um, we just, we're just out there making, right. We're, we're, we're making artwork, we're making relationships. So hopefully we're making money and we sometimes don't realize that how liable we are how liable our businesses, how liable our bank accounts can be um, when we step into this, because it can build pretty quickly. Um, or maybe we just get so busy that we like don't really think to make sure that we're protected. 
And so I want to start in this space before we, before anybody drops off, I want to make sure that the listeners are, are protected, that their business is set up properly and that they've got the proper protections in place. And so, um, can we start there with just the essential layers that every photography business should have? Yes. Yeah. So I like to teach this concept. I call it the layers of protection and I like to, uh, use it as an analogy, like for layers of clothing, right? So the layers of clothing that you need are very dependent on the weather, whether you're a warm person and cold person, legal layers are the same way, but we all need some essential layers. It's like our socks and our underwear, so to speak. And those are insurance and contracts. So <laughs> I call those okay. the non-negotiables. That's what everyone needs. Well, That's our let's insurance. not get ahead of ourselves. So there's some <laughs> listeners out there who may just enjoy some breeze, you know, and that's yeah, all right. Well, at, least, at least like pants then. Okay. You know? <laughs> okay, good. Okay. So, so the, uh, uh, the two, the, the two essentials are what again? I got, sorry, I got in my head there. The two essentials are what? <laughs> Insurance and contracts okay. from the legal perspective. Okay. Let's, let's break those down one at a time. Let's, let's talk insurance. So, uh, when you say insurance, what do you mean? So specifically we're talking about general liability insurance and then also professional liability or errors and omissions insurance. Hmm. This is kind of two different things. Um, I'm not an insurance agent, but you know, I interview them on my podcast. We kind of get the basics and you know, ultimately insurance, not super expensive for relatively new business owners. And that is, and this is saying a lot, I feel like coming from an attorney, arguably the most important layer of protection you can have mm. is your insurance. Cause the insurance is, the insurance is what's going to pay out the money. If you get sued, if you are covered for whatever that lawsuit is. Are there any, um, is there anything that we should be looking for when we're looking for like general liability insurance for a business? Um, I, and again, I understand that you're not uh, an insurance salesman. That's not, you're not a broker. You don't do this, but do you know, is there some like maybe minimums that we should be looking for when we're, when we're kind of, uh, comparing plans and offerings or is it all pretty standard? Uh, it's, Relatively standard, but the plans can vary pretty wildly. Uh, whenever you go to get insurance, they're going to send you a questionnaire. You're going to fill out the questionnaire and then they're going to quote you based on that. Right. Okay. Some people will kind of fib on their questionnaires, hoping that it's going to save them money. It's a very, very bad idea because if you do that, then the coverage is not going to cover what you need it to. Right. So the more things you need covered, the more expensive the insurance is going to be. So an example, for that is if you are a pretty seasoned photographer and you own a lot of expensive equipment okay. and you don't bring that up with your insurance agent, well, you're probably not going to get property coverage on that. And now your equipment's not going to be covered. So if you have $20,000 of equipment versus the photographer who only has 5,000, you need to let your insurance company know that policy might cost you a little bit more, but it's going to cover all of the extra stuff that you have. Yeah. That was going to be my next question about this general liability insurance. Um, and again, I know that we're getting into a space that's probably not yours, but like I have uh, liability insurance, but then I also have my equipment, my gear insured separately. Uh, and there's a few options for photographers that are really industry specific that, that focus on uh, trades like ours to get insurance on your equipment like that. Um, but is that, is that necessary? Can you, can you have your equipment insured through your liability insurance or even through like your homeowner's insurance? You can, you can, so you can do it through, um, it's not really through your liability insurance. It's kind of like an all a car add on. Yeah. So 
I like to equate insurance to like flying spirit airlines. Like you pay for your flight. <laughs> like the general liability is your flight. And then it's like, all right, what else do I need to add on to make this a tolerable experience? We're going to have these additional fees for all the different kinds of coverage that we need. Yeah. that's. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Um, okay, great. Th- this is, this is making sense. Is there anything else from an insurance standpoint that that a small business owner should be aware of or is the, are those kind of like the the essentials there on that side yeah so a couple things um highly encourage you to ask about arizona emissions insurance so general liability insurance that only really covers that covers like injuries and those kind of liabilities arizona emissions is what you get to cover mistakes so if you lose um, if you lose some photos, right, that's an error on your part. You would need the Arizona emissions insurance to cover that if someone sued you. Yeah. So definitely add that. Um, the second tip that I have, and I got this from an insurance agent that I interviewed and I thought this was a really great tip is whenever you get your policy from your insurance company, specifically go to the exclusion section. So there's a section of your policy called exclusion okay. and they're specifically telling you what is not covered in your policy. And if you're reading through that and you're saying, oh, this is a problem, you need to tell your insurance agent about it. And they're going to say, well, it's going to cost you X amount of money to add that in. And then at that point, it's up to you to make the business decision of whether you want to add that to your policy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Great uh, note on the errors and omissions side of things. I think that's really important. Listen, I get it. You're all backing up your images. You're doing everything possible. But what can happen will happen. And uh, that seems like a really critical piece uh, to the equation. I have a question. Uh, you know, I've worked at a number of venues that have requested that I, I'm trying to remember the exact verbiage, it's happened a lot, that I add on their venue as a, uh, I forget what the term is, but like uh, I add them onto my insurance, uh, my liability insurance. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, they call that. I think they call that to add them as an additionally insured. Yeah, like, exactly. Person. Yep. Yeah. Um, to be honest with you, I'm not sure like exactly how that works, but basically what's going to happen is if something, if something really bad happened on a wedding day and the couple or someone who's at the wedding goes to get a plaintiff's attorney to sue for whatever reason, they're injured, they're harmed in some way. Mm-hmm. The reality is that plaintiff's attorney is probably going to sue everyone. <laughs> everyone that's like remotely involved. They're going to sue like the venue owner, the photographer, if you're involved somehow, they're going to sue everybody. Wow. And then from that point, in an ideal scenario, everyone has insurance and then your insurance is going to put in the money. They're actually, they actually have attorneys that work for the insurance companies that are going to defend you in the lawsuit. Mm. And at that point, all the insurance companies are going to fight about whose problem this actually is. So the venue wants their name to be on your insurance policy, because that helps them hedge their bets against certain risks that they might be covered under your policy. And then their insurance won't go up. It's like a, it's like a whole thing. Ultimately, like we just want to be really well covered. And then we let the insurance company deal with that. Like a, when the time comes. Okay. So, so then it's from what I'm hearing you say, then that's like an appropriate request that we don't need to be concerned about when a venue asks us to do that, or should we be concerned? Um, I would not be concerned if, I mean, talk to your insurance company about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, say 
it's fairly normal in my industry. Am I putting myself at a great degree of risk here? Um, how are you going to take care of me if something happens? And they should be able to answer your questions on that. But it seems pretty industry standard to me. Um, whether you could tell that venue like no and still get the job, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, that, I think that depends on how much bargaining power each each of you have in this situation. Yeah, typically not. Typically, it's a pretty strong thing. And and I, P.S. I haven't noticed any concerns with that. I just I see postings from photographers and groups that where they are concerned because they're not really familiar. Is this something that I should do, not do? And just kind of wanted to hear from you as a, as a pro in this space. Um, let's go to contracts. So okay. the, what are the, uh, when you say contracts, what all does that include in your mind? So to me, the, the main thing we're talking about here is your client contract, right? Mm-hmm. So you're getting hired to photograph anything. Um, I have a brand photographer coming to my house on Friday. She actually is like a past student of mine. Uh, we work together a bunch. She has a really awesome client contract. I am a little bit biased because <laughs> sure I wrote it. Yeah. Um, but brand photographers, you need to have a contract with your clients, wedding photographers, you got to have a contract whatever. And the contract, I mean, mostly I always tell people to think of your journalism questions. So who, what, when, where, um, you know, you, you don't really got to share the how they don't, you don't need to share how, how you're photographing them. Um, and then sometimes the why, but mostly the who, what, when, and where is what we need to have in the contract. How much are they paying you? Where is this happening? When will it be taking place? And then of course, since the start of 2020, since about March of 2020, we have a whole slew of other things that we need to address, like cancellations, substitutions, postponements, force majeure clauses. And the main thing is all those things need to work together. Um, Hmm. I always tell my students that you need to think of each paragraph in your contract as one member of the team, like your contract is a team. Hmm. And if the members are working against each other, you have a very counterproductive document. And unfortunately that happens a lot in what I call Frankenstein contracts. Let's talk a bit about those Frankenstein contracts because listen, I'm not proud of this, but I've definitely Frankensteined a contract early in my career. Meaning this, I was like, well, someone told me I need a contract. I've, I, I've got this one contract from when I hired the, uh, uh, this guy who painted my house and I could maybe take a part of that. And I, and I found this one part on Google and I, I got my friend who they've got this version that they bought and they've got this thing and maybe I could grab a line from there. You know, and so I've seen this happen. I see it happen all the time. Can you talk about some of the horror stories of what can occur from that? Yeah. So, and and it's exactly what you mentioned. People get different templates from all over the place. And then you pick and choose the parts of each template that you like, and you mush them all together. And the reason why this doesn't work is because you end up having paragraphs that are duplicative. So for example, one attorney might address cancellation within the payment provision of the contract. It might be kind of two concepts in one contract. Mm. Another attorney might have a cancellation provision or another template might have that. And now if you're adding that contract into the old contract, you mentioned cancellation at two different times in your contract. And if those terms contradict one another, not only is that confusing to your client, but in a court of law, it can get both of those provisions thrown out, Mm. in which case the judge can start to just fill in the gaps on what they think should be reasonable. So we don't want that. Um, Another thing like I like to tell people is contract templates. It's kind of like photography editing. Like if someone brings a template to me, 
I look at it and I'm like, well, it's not bad, but it's not the way I would do it. Right. <laughs> so most of the templates out there, if you're getting them from a licensed attorney that's uh, seasoned in this industry, they should be pretty solid. So I always recommend just get a solid template as your base and then you can make minor tweaks from there, but like not rewrites. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, I see CRMs. So client relationship management softwares offering, um, contracts, you know, when you use the software, then you'll get access to our contracts. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I see a lot of them doing that. And yeah, it's been kind of a question of mine in terms of like, well, does that contract, will it apply for my state? Or are there, are there nuances that I'm doing things a little bit differently that this contract would cover? And I'm curious, um, because so many photographers use these client relationship management softwares, by the way, if you're listening, things like Sprout Studio, Tave, Dubsado, 17 Hats, I'm just trying to think of a number of them, um, that the photography community uses at large. HoneyBook would be another one, right? Um, so, uh, can we, can we roll the dice with that? Do, do we need to be a little bit more specific based on our state? Uh, you know, what do you, do you have any thoughts on, and by the way, do you know any of the CRMs that I just mentioned? Yeah. Yeah. I know most of them. Yeah. Um, I've used Dubsado and HoneyBook. I'm an affiliate for HoneyBook. So I'm a rising title you leader, and everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> HoneyBook has like the sweetest affiliate deal. Right. Um, but I am, I'm the co-leader of our Tuesdays together group here. Oh, so radical, radical. Okay. Awesome. Yes. So most of them are pretty good. Like most okay. of those CRMs work with attorneys to create the contract templates. They do keep them pretty general. So um, if you're a beginner photographer and you don't like, you don't feel very strongly and passionate about the way you're delivering particular services, it might be good for you. Um, but if there's anything unique to the way that you do your own packages or the way that you like to handle cancellations and postponements, then you might need some tweaks. Okay. When it comes to the like state to state kind of stuff, for the most part, you're not going to have any issues. Hmm. The vast majority of contracts, particularly in this industry, are not going to have anything that's like not not okay in some states. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, here in California, we don't really allow non-disparagement clauses in contracts. Wait, so you could have mean? a... Yeah, it's a contract provision that says that the client can't like write you uh, nasty like Yelp reviews. So that would be a non-disparagement clause. They're agreeing not to disparage you on the internet. Um, California is very liberal, which means we're very consumer friendly, which means that we want to um, not place too many restrictions on clients. Okay. That's something you would see in a lot of corporate contracts. In Texas, they would probably say like, do do whatever the hell you want, right? Um, So there are really only a few kind of contract provisions in these types of contracts that we look for. Um, But when it comes to like, when you're gonna pay me, that type of stuff, we don't typically have any issues. Yeah, I've seen this maybe come up another state one, uh, having to do with like credit card payments and a 3% or some sort of percent fee getting processed that gets passed on to the client and how some states, and correct me if I'm wrong, by the way, some states allow for that to happen and some don't. Is that correct? Yeah. So California does not allow you to do that. Um, The rules are actually kind of complicated. There's like exceptions to the rule. Yeah. But ultimately from a business perspective, I always just tell people like if the credit card fees are hurting your bottom line that much, then you're not charging enough. So you just need to charge appropriately so that the credit card fees are baked into the cost of uh, what you're charging. I think the specific rule here is that you can't add a surcharge for people who are using a credit card, but you can offer a discount to people who want to pay you with a check. 
Um, but that's actually very difficult to implement because you can specify that to your client, but then most of the CRMs, like you can't really turn off the credit or debit card yeah. on there. Yeah. So then they could tell you they're going to pay you with the check and then they could just pay with the card. So sounds complex. So yes. <laughs> you, you brought this up 2021, it, it like some of the rules got reinvented. We realized, Oh, we need some, we, we need some new rules around these things. And, um, and, and shifts occurred and force, was it force majeure? Is that, did I say that right? Yes. Okay, cool. Yes. So I'm, I, I guess for someone who, um, they've had a contract, it's, it was drafted by a lawyer. They made it a few years ago. It's existing in their business. How often should we be, we'd be revisiting our past contracts to make sure that it's, uh, it still stands and it doesn't need updated. You know what I mean? It sounds like we, we probably should be relooking at our contracts over the last 12 months. Yeah. I mean, I would say anytime we have a global pandemic, that's a good, <laughs> a good time to take a second look. Fair, um, fair. Other, otherwise to be honest, like contract law is so old, like it's been around for so long. Um, and it's not really contract laws based in state law. We don't really get updates in contracts through Congress. So the laws change at a very glacial pace. Hmm. So we're not worried about checking our contracts. Like we are worried about tax law updates, right? So if something as serious as a COVID pandemic happens, then we're going to have some things that shake things up. Otherwise we need to look at your contract anytime you change your business model or change your pricing structure. So if you want to change the way that you're enforcing some of your rules, you need to update the contract. Otherwise I would say like bake it into some kind of like annual review workflow. Like, Oh, let me just glean through my contract to make sure that everything I put in there like last year are things that I'm still wanting to enforce. Yeah. I have two questions uh, on contracts before we move any further. The first question, and this is, this is what I heard from someone. And I'm, I'm just curious to hear now from an actual licensed attorney, if this holds weight, someone once told me that for a contract that maybe gets a little longer, that there can be things that don't, we'll say hold up in court, um, that are in the contract, unless they're like initialed just to prove that the individual actually read that part of the contract. And, and just, I heard the recommendation that for important things on, let's say cancellations, payments, things like that, um, that we have not just a signature at the bottom, but that we have our clients actually initial at some of the most important things. For example, I have my clients do this on the fact that they won't receive raw files. So that way when they say, Hey, I really want those raw files. I said, yo, you, you initially, you, you said you weren't going to get them. Anyhow, I, I was just curious. Uh, is that true? Is that, is that kind of like a, a an extra thing or, or what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's an extra thing. Like, I don't think it's entirely necessary. It's yeah. more helpful, if anything, just to like really have crystal clear communication with your client. Yeah. Um, I would imagine if anything, like if we're going to take this contract to judge Judy and <laughs> specifically they initialed beside the paragraph, like this is when she would probably scold your client. And stop <laughs> them, right. Or yeah. she'd be a little bit lighter on them if they had an initial right by the paragraph. I bring that up because last year a wedding planner actually went on judge Judy for a client who canceled due to COVID and wanted a refund. Mm. It was very interesting. Um, I watched that. It was, it was a good time tell, for me. Tell me more this. I, yeah, I want that episode number. So it, so is a wedding planner who got sued because yes. her client wanted a refund due to COVID. This is all sounds yes. very familiar to a lot of people and they ended up on judge Judy. What happened? Yeah. So the 
the wedding planner specifically, it was a day of coordination package, which I don't know if you, you, I'm sure, you know, my friend Renee Dallo who teaches uh, weddings, um, what is your wedding management, right? Mm -hmm. She tells everyone you offer wedding management, not day of coordination for the specific reason. Mm -hmm. And the client's argument was, well, you weren't there on the day of my wedding. So we canceled it. So you didn't provide any services. And then of course they were like, well, you're not just paying me to be there on the day of like 90% of the work happens before. Mm -hmm. And really um, what us attorneys would say, the issue, the issue in this case, so the actual question they had to solve um, all came down to whether the planner provided any services because the way the planner's contract was drafted said that upon cancellation, the planner would refund any unearned fees but the contract didn't really say what, when fees were earned. And what I thought was most interesting about it was judge Judy didn't really go into the weeds of like, well, how much money have you earned? It was just, you collected a $2,000 deposit. Did you do any work? You did. Yes. She verified that with like emails that she'd sent a timeline she'd created. So judge Judy said, you did work, you earned the fees, no refund. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't see it going there. I was imagining it was going to go in the other direction. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I need to look this up. Fascinating. Yeah. It was a pretty, it was pretty, it was pretty cut and dry. And I would yeah. imagine, I mean, I would imagine this planner probably had a really simple, like three to six page contract, nothing like crazy or extraordinary. Um, and I found that to be a little bit, you know, comforting for the industry. Cause I find a lot of people stress out about these kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. So that was my first question. Second question is I, I, I see this happen a lot with um, maybe there's a family session and uh, the, the grandparents, you know, my, let's say I'm going to go and have pictures of my wife and my kids and, and it's a present. And so my parents end up like paying for it or something. They, they like hire the photographer hypothetically, but I'm going to be the client. I'm going to be the one who's those photographs are going to be of. I see this a lot with weddings where mom and dad may be paying for the photography side of things, but the bride and the groom, the bride and the bride, the groom and the groom, they're the client. And so they were, well, they're the ones who I'm photographing. So are mm -hmm. they the client or is the person who pays for the client who ends up signing or does everybody, should I just have everybody sign everyone initials here? <laughs> yeah. So my perspective is that whoever signs the contract is the client. And I would recommend that the couple getting married, uh, is the client right in okay. a family portrait photography situation it's a little bit different i actually did that last year for christmas i hired a photographer mm -hmm. and they you know did post photos of like every group being in our family and that was my christmas gift to the family right yeah. in that circumstance everyone's getting photographed but i signed a contract i'm the client now in a wedding and you might be able to answer this better i always tell people best case scenario, have mom or whoever give the money to the one member of the couple and yeah. then they pay you. Is that always practical to do? I mean, if you're pretty adamant about it, I would think so, but I'm curious what your thought is on that. Yeah, I, I think it's great. Uh, that's normally how things are done. Um, but sometimes uh, we just get checks from mom and dad. And, uh, and so is that okay? Is that okay to receive payment from somebody else who's not on the contract? Yeah, I, th I think it is as long as everything's like very, very clear. Um, I always recommend that you even tell mom and dad, like, Hey, thank you so much. This is very, very generous that you're covering this, um, for the wedding, but I want to let you know, make it very, very clear that despite the fact that you are paying for this, you are not my client. Um, and if there are any communications that need to take place, I would like that to come, you know, from the planner or from 
the client. Yeah. So I'm even wondering, you said, okay, it'd be good to be very clear about this. Should this be something that gets addressed in our contract that although there may be a third party, I'm making this up, I don't know language, although there may be a third party paying for the uh, services, products and services, um, the client who makes all, like all decisions will be determined by the client. Cause I can imagine maybe then Mamre does as well. We want you to uh, do things differently or something like this because we're paying. Meanwhile, the couple is like, well, we don't want that. This is our wedding. We're the client. Does that make sense where the breakdown could occur? Yeah, I was actually, as you were talking, I was trying to pull up my photography contract template to see if I could find the actual language that I use. Yeah. Um, but I call it a third, like a third party payer provision. Yes. And that's, it's, you know, that's it's it. one to one to two sentences. And that's all it says is regardless of who pays for the service, uh, they are not the client. And the person who signs below is the client. We're only responsible for responding to communications from our client. Love that. I just, I see so much drama in weddings and families and money and like oh, yeah. this stuff happens all the time that I think having, you, you said that's a third party payer provision. What'd you call that? Yeah, I call it a third party payer provision. Um, you can call it whatever you want. Uh, this is why we always have the other fun provision in our contracts that specifically state that the article headings in your contract are not actually part <laughs> of the mean contract. Nothing. <laughs> yeah, you can like nickname them whatever you want. <laughs> You should name them after like um, British desserts. <laughs> yeah, you get. I've seen. I do not recommend getting creative in your contracts, but I have seen. I have seen it. Okay, I love this. This is good, man. I, I really, I, I'm enjoying keeping things on the the kind of legal side of of this conversation, um, and I and part of me just wants to to stay in that space. Um, is there is there a contract that is needed? When a client ends up canceling, like, like for example, they've, they've signed a contract that said, Hey, we're having you there on this day for this thing. And then COVID happens and, and, and it gets canceled or the, maybe the couple just decides they're no longer going to have the event. Is it needed for our protection to have a client sign some sort of cancellation thing? And I think in, in, I'm asking this because in my brain, I'm thinking, well, they signed a contract that I signed a contract that says I'm going to be here to do this thing. Well, well now we're not, so is it, or now we're just shaking hands. And, and so I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yes. So the, the answer is yes, <laughs> for sure. Okay. Um, in like inside of my programs, I have a cancellation agreement template. Um, I just pulled that up so I could look at it. It's very simple. Yeah. It's one page. Um, in there, you ha we have a paragraph that says the parties are agreeing to mutually cancel and release each other of any legal claims, you know, under your mm -hmm. prior contract. Mm -hmm. And then you have a short paragraph on fees. Are you returning anything? Do they still owe you anything? What are you doing with regard to fees? And then um, that's pretty much it. You have a couple other like little provisions of legalese, but yeah. it's mainly, you know, you're agreeing not to sue me. I'm not going to sue you. Here's what's happening with the money. I dig that. Um, when it comes to, uh, by the way, I really do mean it. I want to stay entirely on the legal side of stuff. <laughs> so that's where we're staying right no now. Problem. And I'm, and I'm going to try to keep asking these questions that I know photographers have. I know these are kind of like sticking points where maybe they've, they've considered purchasing a contract or working with someone and, and they're just kind of like not sure about certain areas. And I know payment collection is a big one. Do you like, are, are there any, um, I don't know if, uh, 
standard isn't the right word, but like um, necessary or, or recommended ways of collecting payment. I can give you an example of what I mean. Sure. Um, is it appropriate to require payment for a service before you actually do the event. Like for example, I, I currently require that the wedding be paid 30 days prior to the event. Would yeah. that, is that, is that, will that hold up? Is that okay? Or, or do you recommend like 50%, 50%, you know, whatever, something like that? No, like I, I don't do shit until I get paid. I recommend people do the same. <laughs> Sorry. You don't have time for your bleep button. On. <laughs> there there, there you go. Okay. Perfect. Um, yeah. I mean, there is kind of this, this kind of like reasonableness argument yeah. and this gets really complicated. Basically, in a court of law, for the most part, like what your contract says goes for the most part. Um, but occasionally there are circumstances where a judge can look at what they call equitable arguments and equity is just another word for fairness, right? Mm -hmm. So if someone sues you, there are circumstances where they can ask what's fair in this circumstance. And at that point, you know, if you collect a hundred percent of the money up front and then they cancel 90 days before their wedding and you've literally done no work, um, there is an argument to be made that that's not equitable or not fair, right? So we wanna keep it tied to fairness. Now, to be honest with you, this is a lot easier for wedding planners. I work with a lot of wedding planners because for them, like they're doing, you know, a lot of work in a full year long process. Yeah. And it's easy for easier for them, I always say, people should be paying you before you do the work, but your payment should always be tied to the scope of work you're going to be doing during a given point in time. So if you are halfway to the wedding date from the time they hired you, ideally you've done half the work and you've been compensated half the payment mm. for photography. It's a little bit different um, unless you have an engagement session. And again, you can rebut this if you feel differently, but I would assume that the bulk of the work is day of the wedding. And then after the wedding, editing the photos, right? So maybe yeah, there's you get your a deposit. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, everyone's different. Everyone has their own processes. I think for most photographers, there is a decent amount of work still up front in regards to um, helping couples. Uh, honestly, sometimes we fill a bit of that role of planner, not always, but even still like helping think through timeline. Sometimes we're working yes. with planners to think through the timeline, um, questionnaires, phone calls, meetings to just discuss, look, feels, what do they want? What do they value? Um, so there is... There is some of that, but uh, listen, there's no way around saying, even if you've got a ton of front loaded client experience, the majority yeah. of the work legitimately is going to be from the wedding day and then out with editing and printing and album design and delivery, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The short of it, like the short of it is what I recommend is I'm a, still a fan of taking 50% non-refundable retainers. Um, but what I advise my students to do is to put half of that in a retainer bank account. It's like a savings account. So you set it aside. You don't spend it until after the wedding happens, after you deliver the photos. So worst case scenario, if you're doing that, you basically have 25% of all your client money in a savings account. You have plenty there in case you need to make some refunds. Not saying that you ever have to make refunds, but sometimes it's easier just to give people some money back and let them go away, right? So take 50% up front, set aside 25% of it, and then I... I always recommend taking the other 50%. Um, most people do 30 days before the wedding day. Mm. Um, I even think that 60 days is great. So that way, if you have some people that are a little uh, slow on the uptake, 
you have like a 30 day buffer. Cause I want you to have the money in hand 30 days before the wedding. Yeah. Cause there's nothing worse than being two weeks out and like having to go in a Facebook group and saying, I haven't been paid yet. Like if I no show, am I going to get sued? I've emailed these people 10 times. So that's why I like 60 days. Yeah. I dig that. Um, in regards to a chicken of the egg question. Uh, so I meet with my clients in person. I'm sorry. I should say my leads. Uh, a lot of times I'm, I'm having interactions with my leads in person or over zoom. And usually during that time, they're making a buying decision if they'd like to hire me or not. And, uh, so let's go ahead and let's just say that you and I are, are having conversation, Braden, and you say, yeah, Ben, I want to work with you. I say, perfect. Uh, the next step is it's going to be a thousand down or whatever the money is to reserve the date. Uh, and then I can put together your contract and I'll send that over to you. Is that going to be credit card or check? And I usually take that money right then. <laughs> as soon as you're saying, <laughs> yes, I will pay you. I say, pay me. And then they do. And then I send over a contract. Um, is, is that, uh, is that good? Is that bad? Uh, again, chicken of the egg, is it the contract and then the payment? Uh, is it the payment and then the contract? Is it, and it's usually happening within a 24 hour window. Yeah. Um, but talk to me about those thoughts. Yeah. Ultimately, I don't think there is like an exact correct way to do it. I like to do the opposite. I like to get the contract signed first and then get the payment because once they sign the contract, they're my client and then they pay me. Um, but I always am careful to specify like your date's not getting reserved until you do both. Like you got to do both mm, of these things. Yeah. Um, for you though, I understand. And I think it makes sense that you take the payment while they're there at the table before they can get cold feet or while they're still like very, very warm. Um, and you can't like, you can't make them sign a contract during the meeting because you can't have people sign contracts under duress. You got to at least give them time to like read it. However long you know, they're not going to read it, but like <laughs> yeah, they're not going to read it, but they'll read the, part least, the initial, right? <laughs> you know, right, you, at least, you, gotta, you gotta, you gotta email it to them. So that way, if you ever do have a legal dispute, you're going to say, you know, I emailed it to them. I, you know, gave them 48 hours or I gave them a week to like read it and sign it and ask me questions. I wasn't sitting at a table telling them that like their discount was going to go away in 10 minutes if they didn't sign this document in front of me. That's what we don't want to do. Gotcha. Okay. So it sounds like there's a, there's a, maybe a degree of yes. Like a, maybe a, it's, and correct me, but it sounds like maybe there is a, a preference with this one way or the other, that it may depend on even like your, uh, your sales style or kind of how you meet with your yeah. clients or, or I want to make sure I'm, I'm not missing the mark there. Is that right though? Yeah, I think it's fine either way. Just my perspective is, is if they pay me first, um, I don't really view that money as mine until the contract is signed. Agreed. agreed so if they that. get cold feet and they ask for the money back the next day, I'm going to give it to them. Legally, you could argue you had an implied contract already because they paid you, but I wouldn't yeah. go down that rabbit hole. Um, what I did, and this is what I would recommend if you're doing maybe portrait photography at a, it's a much lower price point than sure. wedding photography. Um, when I did a lot of one-on-one -on -one consultations, I used Dubsado. And the way my system was set up is you could fill out my intake form on my website. It would ask you, do you want to book a consultation? Yes. And they would ask if you were ready to sign the contract and then you check yes. And then the Sato sends the contract. And then after you sign the invoice was automated. And then after you paid my calendar link was automated. So mm -hmm. when you have something that's really systematized like that, I think that's the ideal scenario. But if you're doing live sales meetings, um, I don't think it's a problem to take payment first. Just don't spend it until you get the contract signed. Yeah. Yeah. And even on that note, I, I will verbally let people know that they have, 
72 hours if they decide that, because uh, usually um, maybe it'll just be one person there and they're hemming and hawing and they say, well, we'll, we'll look over things. And I said, well, you can, you know, you can pay now and, and then you have 72 hours if you decide, hey, this isn't going to line up or whatever and I'll, I'll just give you that money back. Um, so there has been times that I've had to verbalize that. Never had to do it, but I verbalized it. That's good. Uh, I had someone just two weeks ago pay me for a consultation mm-hmm. and then email me two hours later and saying that they wanted to cancel the consultation. Yeah. And I was like, well, I paid $40 in processing fees on that money already. So I'll refund you like part of it. Why are you um, letting people know our drama? Why are you spilling my tea? Why are you out me like that? <laughs> Uh, I would never, but (laughs) this, you know, it it happens. Right. And I was like, well, my contract says your money's non-refundable, but I literally like, I haven't really done, you know, I gave them their money back. Yeah, exactly. I I totally agree with that idea as well, man. uh, Brayden, this has been incredible. So, so you offer contracting services for photography, you offer contracts and, and legal documents for photographers. Is that accurate? Yeah. So I no longer have like a robust contract template shop on my website. Um, that's just a business model that I didn't want to dive too deep into, but I do provide contract templates. I have a full template bank as part of my, um, signature program. So uh, what's the release date on this podcast? Oh, well, right now it's going out live to the mastermind group. Oh, beautiful. com forward slash mastermind. Uh, but the actual episode, uh, I have a healthy catalog of these built out. And so it'll, this will probably honestly hit the mastermind group probably two months before it'll actually go on air. Okay. All right. So either way, um, I have a new program that I'm going to be launching at Wedding MBA. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't even shared the program name yet. So your uh, mastermind people are going to get the, they'll be the, the first people to get the tea. Nice. Um, the program name is called the Profit RX, your prescription to build wealth in your business, get your legal tax stuff together, all of that. Um, so it's going to be a monthly group coaching program. It's kind of an evolution of previous things that I've done in the past, but I'll be helping people set up their LLCs, S-Corps, get their contract templates and much, much more. So people can stay tuned for that. Um, Meanwhile, I have about 190 podcast episodes on my own podcast and blogs and all that good stuff over on my website. That's awesome. And what website can we send people to? If people are curious and they want to know more, they want to find you online, Braden, where can they do that? Yes. So www.bradendrake.com. You can follow me on Instagram. It's Braden, B-R-A-D-E-N, no Y, Adam, like the biblical figure, and Drake, like the rapper. That's my full name. I dig it. Bradendrake.com. Got it? Awesome. Brayden, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for being so generous with all of your information, your knowledge that you've gotten uh, from, from doing this, from doing the craft, from getting your master's. This is incredible. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Podcast listeners, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for dedicating this last hour to the growth of your business. I appreciate you so much. I can't wait to see you in the next episode of the Six Figure Photography Podcast. Until then, keep showing up.